Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today we're going to be doing something we haven't done before. We're going to be going over a case study. This episode is nearly a year in the making, but it's filled with clinical wisdom. Those of us who were involved learned a ton, so we wanted to share it with you. Joining me today is Dr. Kristen Fellows and Dr. Josh Lawler. I think you're going to find this case to be very informative. So without any further ado, Dr. Kristen Fellows and Dr. Josh Lawler. Dr. Fellows and Dr. Lawler, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. So this, uh, we're going to go over a case today, and it's uh, it's Kristen's case. So um, there's a lot of stuff here, from emails to X-rays to uh, case notes, and uh, as we were just discussing, there's a lot of little things hidden all over this place. So I'm going to let you start, Kristen, by explaining who this patient is and and how this kind of became what it became. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Um, This patient is someone who I met back in the early 2000s when I first started my practice and um, started seeing her as a patient. Eventually, she became my CA and became a good friend. And um, Melissa is one of just the sweetest, most tenderhearted people you will ever meet. Um, she also served in Iraq, which is where she met her husband, and he has told me she was also an amazing soldier. Um, but she had her first motor vehicle accident when she was in Iraq in a Humvee. So when she came in to see me, there was already an existing condition. But just um, a couple years ago, uh, back in 2021, uh, actually, she had another motor vehicle accident, and it was she only got hit at about 15 miles an hour, but I think there was enough instability in her spine already that it really had an impact on her. So that's where this case all started. And, and she and, was having rather unusual symptoms as well. Yeah, so. so if I could just read off a list of the symptoms she gave me since the second car accident, she was having headaches all over her head, neck pain, dizziness bladder leakage, acid reflux that happened immediately after eating. Um, She had ringing in her ears, arrhythmia, tachycardia, tingling in both her hands. She had visual snow where it was like a a static TV screen in her eyes constantly. She had difficulty focusing her eyes, weakness in both of her hands, swelling in both of her hands. She was sweating a lot. She had pain and tightness in her chest and in her lungs, and it was hard to get a deep breath, Um, a tickle in her throat, and hives. So there was just a lot going on. And and then you had started working with her. What was it that made you uh, reach out? Because you started an email chain. I know uh, Dr. Josh and I were on it. So was Danny O'Hara. Was anybody, I don't remember if anybody else was on it. Um, But what made you decide to reach out to other people um, after you started seeing her? I don't remember exactly, but it might've been once I saw that the, the dizziness was an especially troubling symptom for her, um, you know, making it hard for her to drive a car and um, had her go in for an MRI. And we saw a white lesion on her spinal cord in the MRI. And so I wanted to um, just get a little more feedback from some of the other Gonstead docs I know as to whether they thought I could still make some headway in this case. So initially, um, it looked like she had a C5 problem. Is that right? Is that what it, initially, is that what it looked like? Yeah. So when we looked at the MRI, you could see where the cord was indented there. And that's right also where that white lesion was on the cord. 
And so um, everybody was kind of leaning towards that C5 and uh, Dr. O'Hara gave like detailed, somewhat detailed instructions on how to adjust it so you stabilize above and below to get it set. But then you did the C5 and how did that turn out? <laughs> um, not so great. I only adjusted it once and then not again after that. So she didn't feel great after the C5. She came back and said she felt worse. Also, immediately after I adjusted C5, um, which also you know looked posterior and inferior on um, the lateral cervical neutral x-ray, um, right after I adjusted it, the scope looked really crazy. Um, so it was like way over to the left. And then shortly after that, it went way over to the right, just off the charts in both directions. Um, and so I, I thought that there was probably some instability going on there. And especially since she didn't do very well with it, um, decided to stay off of that and go a different route. And she, one of her symptoms was tachycardia. And so because of that, everybody was, was thinking parasympathetics. Right. Uh, but then there kind of came this point where Dr. <laughs> Dr. Josh suggested a T1. Yeah, um, it seemed kind of crazy. So I'm going to read the email that, that Josh wrote, and I'll let him talk about it here in a second. Whoops, I went too far. Um, he wrote, oh, I'll take this one. Dr. Burns always tells the story of Dr. Gonstead going to see a patient with tachycardia. He checks and fixes it on the knee chest table. Dr. Dressler was in observing, and he chased Doc in the hallway, and he stopped him. And he said, hey, Doc, did you know that patient had tachycardia? Dr. Gonstead said, yes. And Dr. Dressler said, but with tachycardia, Shouldn't you have fixed the atlas? Dr. Gonstead just shook his head and said, use boys, just don't get it yet. And he went back to fixing his patients. So in my simple mind, at least in one aspect, in the, one aspect, the compensatory statement can affect neurology, providing the symptoms we see, even if we don't understand the direct effect. The atlas is a great compensator. I believe 65% of the time, Doc said, according to Dr. Wood. So Josh, let's talk about that for a second. Um, this idea that compensations produce can produce symptoms. Uh, is that, I don't know, it seems to me that's probably a foreign idea to a lot of Gonstead doctors. We tend to think retrolisthesis is subluxation and anterolisthesis is compensation at the end. And really yeah, quickly, yeah. if I could just interject, I was, I was playing around with Atlas a little bit and I was getting different findings every time. And, you know, it, it was like my scope was different every time. The motion up there was different every time. Romberg's wasn't matching. So it, it, it just didn't seem like Atlas was the one I was supposed to be adjusting. So I'll let Dr. Josh take over. Yeah, I, I think um, <clears throat> when, I, when I think about that, you know, when Dr. Burns told me that story, I'm like, that makes perfect sense. It was his, his way of saying, and, and Dr. Gonstead's way of saying, accept it where you find it. So mm -hmm. if things aren't responding, et cetera, go back. And we all know to go back and look to see what we might be missing. Used to, uh, another, along that same line, I used to watch and follow Dr. Troxel and, you know, I, and I followed many great Gonstead doctors um, and following Dr. Troxel and a lot of the guys uh, in the Gonstead work, it, it was amazing to me that so often they'd be fixing things in the base of the neck, anywhere from C6 down to third dorsal. But that always seemed to me that was a very important area. And especially after a car accident, um, we all know that that can be the case. And sometimes when tissue gets torn enough and disturbed enough, there's a lot of inflammation and things that go on, go on in and around that tissue. You know, the, the subluxation is not a bone on a nerve or a disc on a nerve, but it's not open space in there. You know, there's fluid. So if me and you and Kristen all stood shoulder to 
shoulder and we put a balloon between the two of us and I leaned into Kristen, that would put some pressure into her, into your balloon, and then into you. Although there may, may never be any physical contact of a quote unquote structure. Right. <clears throat> so for, for me, I keep it real simple in terms of the compensatory line of thinking. I think you can have neurology problems with those. And I think we see those all the time. Uh, case in point, when I followed Dr. Troxel and he'd, he'd be working on a case, this and that, the kids would come out from Palmer and very often they're getting C2 because they're always getting these headaches and they get adjusted and I'd watch them work on the kids. And at first I'm like, okay, this would be interesting. And so as the years went by, you kind of knew what, how it was going to play out. They all come in and they go just right here. Even after you'd adjust them, they're like, well, this is right where it's been. And they put their finger right on the back of axis and go right there. And that's where it's coming from. And uh, he just keeps chipping away at the base of the neck or the middle back, wherever he found it. And eventually all that symptomatology, even soreness we think about. So soreness has soft tissue implications, neurology, swelling, et cetera. Why couldn't that affect a parasympathetic situation just the same? And I think it does a lot. Um, so like when Kristen sent me that email, I'm thinking, well, I, I saw what the other guys were doing and she was looking at the things I'd be looking at. And so to, to me, the rule of thumb is we always teach, of course, look lower. Uh, Dr. Gonsett said, if you don't got a good foundation, look lower. And uh, so that's, that's kind of the way my brain thinks about that. It's very simplistic. And in this particular instance, she had so many different things going on. And when you looked at her, her neck on the spine, you know, if I look at C4s kicked up in the back real hard, C5 and C6 have old damage, C7's down. And then when you get to T1, if you look on the lateral, it's kicked slightly or excuse me kicked laterally on the ap just slightly so i was kind of just looking for something different quite honestly i wasn't doing nothing fancy there <laughs> yeah and if i look at my first couple visits you know i was on t6 i wasn't higher than t6 initially but eventually i went up to c7 because it did look posterior inferior on the lateral it didn't look like it was going anterior on my flexion film and it was motion palpating not lifting into flexion off a of t1 but it was that T1 that really changed things, especially with the heart symptoms and the headaches. Yeah, I think that's the amazing thing is it was hoping to get a little bit of a biomechanical change that might help with the biomechanics of the joint. And you got tremendous resolution of symptoms and neurology right. off that one. Yep. Uh, and well, okay, so before I go to the next part, I did notice in here, um, the, uh, there was the whole issue where the x-rays got sent to a DAC bar. And the DAC bar saw the lesion on the MRI, and basically their summary was chiropractic can't help with this. So right. I need to start that at the beginning because the rest of what we're going to tell is how chiropractic help with this. <laughs> so we'll start with that. Um, and so then, so you've got that T1 area that you're looking at. You're kind of shying away from the upper surface a little more. But then we ended up with something down in the sacrum. And I thought yeah. that was kind of interesting too how that went. Because initially you were setting sacrum to ilium, just setting a sacrum. But then it turned out it had to be highly specific. Not just right. which segment, but even how you did it. You gave a detailed explanation of exactly how you did the adjustment. And it didn't work if you didn't do it that way. Correct. Yeah. Um, you know, and if I if I had my contact point on S3, then she would be worse. You know, so she would have more low back pain. She would have more leg pain. She started getting constipation. She started having eye twitching. Um, all when I started on S3. And it turned out I needed to be very specifically on S4. And that's what took away 
the eye twitching, the constipation, the leg pain, the low back pain, but it also took away that bladder leakage. And I, you know, if I just got on S4 and lifted it up to S3, that didn't do it. If I adjusted as a rotated sacrum, that didn't do it either, adjusting it to the SI joint. Um, I had to very specifically get just barely to the right side of it and adjust it like you would do a PRS. But she had an eaxillium on that side. So I had to be really careful not to be too far out to the right of that tubercle because that was on the eaxillium side. Um, so I had to be more right on the tubercle, just slightly on the right side of it and pushing from lateral to medial toward that midline to not make that relationship between sacrum and ilium worse and that right SI joint on the side of the EX. Um, but that was just totally it for the bladder. And that stayed good ever since then. Her body responded well when I got it right. You know, when we got the T1, that heart stuff stayed away. When we got the, the S4 exactly, very specifically correct, the bladder stuff stayed away. It's, you know, so she's responded well, but you've got to do it just exactly right on her. Did you ever have to do anything with the EX ilium or the yes, sacrum? I did, um, especially if my hand was not close enough to the midline on that adjustment. And then sure enough, that EX ilium would show up. And it's, you know, because I think I was just a little too far out toward toward that EX ilium on my sacrum adjustment. Um, you know, so I did do the, the EX ilium as well. It was what showed up that day, whether it was showing up on my scope and my motion and in her gates and everything as the S4 or the EX ilium. So I did go back and forth between the two a little bit. Yeah, your uh, sacrum adjustment, you even mentioned that you had to have like this slight lateral to medial component, like a PRS, which I thought was kind of interesting. I When I do sacrums, especially little segments, I try not to go too lateral to medial because that's not normally how they move much, but yeah. who knows? And her, <laughs> her whole spine was rotated all the way up, you know? Yeah. And so that's where you would look at the film and go, oh, we got to do a rotated sacrum adjustment on that, right? How we would typically do that to the SI joint on the side of the ionilium, and that wasn't doing it. Yeah. Well, I was explaining to a, a student over the weekend how when you get posteriority on unilaterally, that's relative rotation. And right. so the correction is just to set that side P to A, and you'll correct for the rotation, Right. It's not really there, but it's just a unilateral posteriority that's mm -hmm. doing it. So, yeah, it's very interesting how that those sacral segments I've found require sometimes they require so much specificity, and you get them right, symptoms go away, and you get a little bit wrong. Atlas is the same way. You yeah. miss one component of an atlas, and you may not get it, even though your listing's correct. You just didn't get all the components out. It's right. funny, the top and the bottom are pretty sensitive that way. Yep. Um, let me see here. Oh, there was another thing. One of Dr. Uh, Denny O'Hara's questions to you had to do with her fingers and whether or not her rings were fitting. Um, and yep. you came back and said that, no, her rings were not fitting and she was having to take them off. Yeah, um, especially he, in the morning when she would wake up after laying down all night. Yep. So um, I don't know if, if you read his, I'm sure you read his explanation. Do you want to talk a little about that? I'll let Josh can talk about it as well. But basically what we're talking about between sensory and motor and what he was trying to discover by asking that question. Josh, if you have it in front of you, go ahead and read it. I don't have that one in front of me right now. Was that in your binder, Kristen? <laughs> the, the emails? <laughs> it, it had to do with whether it was sensory or motor. And he said, basically sensory will, is a perception, but there's no actual physical change. Whereas in motor, there's a physical change. So the fact right. that 
to swell it, our fingers were swelling in a ring fit, it was a sign of a motor problem. Right, you can see it. So he said with a motor problem, you can see it on the patient. With a sensory, it's just something that they're feeling. They have to tell you about and you have to take their word for it. So with a motor problem, you're thinking more like a posterior inferior cervical, which would cause pressure on the anterior part of the cord because the anterior is the, the motor part. Yeah, and so we were talking about um, about how her her T1 was probably in, was probably posterior inferior. So because of that, um, she was probably getting more motor. She was getting motor. That's why her fingers were swelling. Yeah, Whereas- and her hands were weak as well. It was hard for her to open jars. Um, so that would go along with it. And, you know, it was probably really pulling that C5 posterior inferior because of the subluxation down lower there. Whereas the atlas is probably, and the C2 even, are probably going into flexion, which is going to impinge on the posterior portion, which is sensory. Um, and so um, that leads us then into another sensory problem <laughs> where we had this weird key that involved the TMJ. Yeah, uh, so she was having dizziness and hand tingling, and those didn't go away until I worked on her jaw. And the jaw is what helped with that. And so that would be more of a posterior cord pressure. Um, and that's the sensory part. So that would make sense with the dizziness and the hand tingling. Um, and she was saying that her dizziness was worse after her head was in flexion for a while. And then she would go to lift it up. So with your head in flexion, that would put pressure more in that posterior part of the cord. So what I noticed about her TMJ is, and I've just seen this on a couple patients where I was standing behind her and I was feeling it with my fingers and it felt okay. But then when I visually looked at her, it looked like she had an underbite. So I was just figuring it was like, like the whole thing was just anterior and inferior. And Dr. Fowler, I think in our, our emails back and forth, you were talking about how that would make sense with a whiplash injury, how how that that can happen in that sort of mechanism. And so once I set her jaw and brought her jaw up on both sides, she said that was the best she had done with the hand tingling and the dizziness. And then you were also talking about C2 and how that's related to the jaw. Yeah, I'll read what I wrote because it's probably more concise than me trying to do it off the top of my head. (laughs) Um, What I wrote was, um, I had to think about it for a bit and I still might be missing something, but I believe it would work like this. Bilateral AI TMJ would be synonymous with jaw opening. Jaw opening causes deactivation of the anterior neck muscles, allowing the C2 to move into flexion. Um, It's important to recognize, I didn't write this in here, that um, the instantaneous axis of rotation for the TMJ is not at the TMJ, but it's at the odontoid process. That's the reason why the anterior neck muscles have to allow flexion to allow that pivot to occur at the odontoid. Um, This situation can become pathological if there is hypermobility of C2. I'm thinking that the result of that motion and the resolution of symptoms might be better explained by the fact that chronic flexion of C2 would probably create a chronic AS atlas every time she opens and closes her mouth. By fixing the TMJ, you stabilized her atlas and stabilized all the neurology that goes with it that was chronically irritated from the motion. A unilateral TMJ would not do that because the C2 would typically wedge opposite the bad TMJ as a compensation, and the excessive flexion of C2 would be one-sided. So it would look more like rotation of C2 and less like actual flexion. So And she does have a very rotated-looking C2. When you look at her APOM, 
And it was clear that an adjustment to C2 was not a good thing on her. There weren't too yeah, many times I did that. She needed it stabilized to reduce the motion. And right. probably with that appearance, she probably has one TMJ that is worse than the other. But yep. they're both doing it to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, what I was going to tell you is that I just had a patient yesterday who um, it was only the second time I've seen him. Um, he's had six seizures, grand mal seizures in the last four years, which is just enough to have your license threatened, but not enough to really do anything else. Um, so that was his concern is he's a young guy and he's threatening to have his, his license and his view, his freedom taken away from him. Um, had to move back in with his parents. Not so happy about that. So I adjusted him. I don't remember exactly what I adjusted, but I believe I adjusted um, an atlas and a sacrum, I believe, on the first visit, something like that. He came in yesterday. Those things were doing great. But he says to me, I've got a problem with my TMJ. I hadn't really, he came in, I hadn't really looked that close from the front. So I walk around, I look from the front and his jaw looks like this. Wow. His, uh, his mentis is under one of his nostrils instead of in the middle of his nose. And I was like, yes, you do. So, um, so I had him open and close a couple of times. And not only did his, could I, I could visually see that his molars were not lining up, but also um, he had to kind of hook his jaw to get it around the stuck point to get it to go. So I was like, all right, so let's adjust it. So, you know, typically we do it like in sets of three. So I did, I took three, three tries at it and I felt it kind of slide in, but it wasn't that satisfying. And I came around, I looked again and it was somewhat better, but still it wasn't making me happy. I go back and I do a fourth one and the fourth time's the charm. It went thud and set in immediately. He goes, that did it. I came back <laughs> around, teeth lined up, face was normal, structure and everything. Wow. And he was, he was like, oh, my head feels so much different. And he said, would that cause headaches? And then he outlined with his finger the suture joint of the temporal bone. <laughs> I said, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> so um, so it's like I've seen this. and I'm like, you know, these TMJs might be one of the most ignored um, neurological components of all this. Yeah. Because, um, because I told him, I said, I could give you a theoretical reason why impinging the trigeminal nerve could lead to your headaches. But also the hypermobility of your upper cervical spine could also be leading to the, the seizures. So it's just interesting that it was like that quick. I had another one like that. And I was like, these TMJs are not to be ignored. They, uh, they definitely play a role in all of it. Yeah. The other symptom that went away um, is she had one lingering headache left. You know, she had had different kinds of headaches. But the one that went away after the TMJ adjustment was like a band all the way around her head. Um, so that TMJ adjustment helped with that. Yeah, it seems to form a different pattern. And I don't know, Josh, a lot of times when you teach TMJ stuff and we teach like pain patterns, is there a pain pattern that we teach for TMJ or is it just kind of something that doesn't fit with everything else? Uh, probably that one. And <laughs> like you said, we overlook them. You, so often you're working, you're like, oh, I better check the jaw. And then you go, oh, there's the jaw. The most consistent is once you start checking them, they'll go, oh, that's tender. I mean, when you put your finger on, on the bad side, it'll be tender. Sometimes it's bilateral. So that's probably the most consistent. And like what you were talking about, I, I checked the doc up at the clinic this weekend and he was having some trouble. And what his trouble was, he was getting headaches regularly. And since he had COVID last year, he's just had fog and tired and all this kind of stuff. Just hasn't been right. And he's had some trouble with his neck and all that. And he's under good care. And I, I asked him, I said, well, have you been have you had someone check your jaw? He's like, no, I haven't. So I checked his jaw and sure enough, it, it laterally slid and then dropped away the opposite end AI on the right side. And as I palpate, he's like, Ooh, that's tender, you know? 
So I worked on that a couple um, times just to straighten it out, and the, and the jaw guided closed much uh, closed much straighter. And when I asked him where his headache's at, of course he went just like what you were showing there, up along the temple, so uh, or up along the the suture, and the jaw itself can change the neck just as fast as the neck can change the jaw. So yeah. like this case Kristen has, I have a patient. Um, she's just about going to be at 90. She was in six major auto accidents in her life. She had a surgical fusion in her neck. And she was one of my early on cases of uh, tachycardia and arrhythmia. And you'd think you need to be at the top to fix that. But she, again, hers is the base of the neck. And we had pre and post EKGs. She'd go to the hospital. She'd be in arrhythmia all over the place. And hers, you could palpate. You know, you just take the pulse, count the rhythm, and it would start skipping. Yep. One, two, three, and then it'd skip, skip, one, two, three, four, five, skip, that kind of a deal. And then after you check her and adjust her, it, it, will, it will go immediate right back into rhythm. And so whether that's coming from a parasympathetic compensatory problem up top or coming from the, the upper dorsal itself, you know, uh, I don't know the answer to that. All I know is, you know, you follow that system and figure out where you need to be and like we were talking on the lateral there, you, you look at the seven cervical that's inferior, but one is very, very subtle. It looks posterior. You can definitely make a case, but that one that looks bad, Dr. Gonsett always said, don't be afraid to look for the one that's not so obvious. So classic is you see a real inferior six cervical, but you got a bad second dorsal. That's really the issue. Yeah. Or you get a real inferior fourth lumbar. And you got five that's dropped down a little bit. But when you really look, it's a third sacral tubercle or segment. Um, so to me, it's those really subtle things. And when you got someone like Dr. Fellows that's been working on a case and you know she's checking them proper, she's done the evaluation, she's taking the x-ray, then you read through some of the notes and she kind of crosses off the list of things that you and I would go through. And you go, well, we'll check this one. And then then all of a sudden the jaw pops up. What side of the jaw did you work on that, Kristen? The right side is what's mostly showing up. And, the, you know, the jaw has changed a little bit after I pulled it up on both sides. Now I'm finding it on the right side. Well, so, I should say I'm finding it that it's shifted to the right, like a like it's medial on the left or like a righty X. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what it's feeling like lately. So for the listeners, Dr. Fowler, and for me, can you explain when you're talking about seeing the wedge on C2 on the opposite side, I understand what you're saying with the, it's an inflection and you'll see that a lot upper cervical, but the wedge on the opposite side. So like, for example, if you have a left AI jaw, what, like a PRS or a PLI, okay. it's going on a wedge opposite mm -hmm. um, as it might rotate. Because that's the other thing is I think sometimes the jaw will give away the subluxation because it's compensating and so that's why you don't just because somebody has a misaligned jaw doesn't necessarily mean you have to adjust it it could i've seen people who have really bad upper cervicals from a whiplash from a car accident and their jaw was way off and i set that atlas and boom that jaw goes right back where it belongs it was oh yeah it was a problem it was just compensating or you set a sacrum in the jaw <laughs> The jaw is better after you set the sacrum and you don't have to touch the jaw. So even if I find a jaw in my initial check before I adjust anything, I'm rechecking it again after I set the foundation. And so often I just leave it alone. Yeah, I'll tell you one. I had a, um, 
orthodontist sent me um, a TMJ case. And it was a time when that orthodontist was sending me a lot of TMJs. So he sent me this TMJ case. And the guy said, um, the doctor said he, he couldn't help him. And I thought, well, that's odd. He tries to help everybody. I don't, I don't know what it would be that he'd say he couldn't help him. So I was like, all right. So I go through the whole, fell in the trap. So I go through and I check the TMJ and I'm checking all this stuff. And yeah, he's got a little bit of stuff. And I'm like, it doesn't seem that bad to me. It's kind of weird. And then fortunately, the light bulb went off and I said, indulge me for a second. And I got my scope and I went around and I scoped his neck and I got this huge reading at the Atlas. And I said, okay, I'm going to fix your neck first, because even if we got to fix your TMJ, I got to get your neck right first. So I set his Atlas. And as soon as I set the Atlas, I hadn't even taken my hands off yet. And he goes, that fixed my TMJ. Like it was that quick that it fixes yeah. it. So there are definitely those. And then I realized that's why he said he couldn't help him. Because as he was evaluating the TMJ, he couldn't find a problem. Right. It was an Atlas problem. And you don't have orthodontics for that. Thank goodness. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So that, that was, so yeah, you get, that's where that area gets tricky is it goes all over the place. And so you, it's hard to figure out who's compensating for who here. Yeah. yeah. So if, if I could give you a confession of a chiropractor, this is a good example, but the moral I think you're talking about is do our due diligence and look at the whole picture and to, yeah. you have to do that in order to accept it where you find it. Um, I had a, a jaw case that way would only open like a quarter to maybe a third open and a chiropractor from cross river. She sent him over and says, Hey, take a look at this guy. So here he comes. And I'm like, okay, I'll check that. And I checked his jaw. I checked the neck. You know, I fixed the upper back. I, I looked it up and that was where my focus was at. <clears throat> and I could not change this guy. This went on for about a month. And so I started running a titron him every visit. Um, I do it pre and post. I started watching his gate every visit pre and post. I'd start, um, I had him close his eyes and he'd, I'd say, okay, turn your head to the left, back to center, turn your head to the right, back to center. And he'd always stop like this. He'd be about two inches left of center. And you take the eyes out of the equation. So that way he's got to do everything without the eyes. And he would always stop like that. So one day he comes in and I'm like, okay, I'm going to figure this thing out. And what I did was I said, okay, I'm going to go through each bone. Now this is, I may get hate mail for this, but I started with the jaw. Check, check, no changes. Titron started with, I don't know if I, what all I fixed, but I probably fixed, I'll bet you four bones on the way down the chain. I figured there's something I'm missing and something's got to change. Either my visualization, my scope, my Titron. I was doing it all, everyone, everyone. And the, the guy's name was Krishna. And so I kept working, working, working. Finally, I'm down to his pelvis and I'm checking his pelvis. Okay, the guy's got an EX ilium. I go over, set the EX ilium. I titron him. That looked different. Ran my scope. That looks a little better. Sat him down. I said, okay, open your jaw. And he goes like this. All the way open. Just open. And I, I just about fell over. And so then I said, well, close your eyes, Krishna. And uh, turn your head to the left. Turn your head to the right. Boom. Straight as an arrow. And it was it was literally just that one adjustment. So just a matter of looking, 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 and don't accept it where you think it's going to be. Accept it really where it's at. And that's really hard to do. You know, it's funny because I'm always telling students that the thing the body has the hardest time compensating for is rotation. And so where it chooses to compensate can sometimes be really weird. Like, obviously, it likes to do the knees. So we all get the patients who come in saying their knees are bad. You fix their EX ilium and their knees are good now or they're sacrum and their knees are good. So that's one compensator. The shoulders sometimes are another one. They'll end up with a bad shoulder or a bad shoulder blade because they're rotating it out. Oh, but yeah. the TMJ is like the missing one. 
that it's not very frequent, but the TMJ can also rotate to undo that rotation and release some of that strain on the upper cervicals. And yeah, it's just bizarre. Yep. So just to clarify, Dr. Fowler, from a few minutes ago, would you expect if she had an AI jaw on the right side, that would look like a C2 PRS? So like opposite wedge? Um, yeah, if it's AI on the right, that would create that would create flexion on that side. Mm-hmm. So it probably a PRI, but maybe, okay. but maybe. So it would follow the jaw, you would expect. Probably. Okay. I, the rotation's harder to anticipate, but sure. I would expect the wedge on the left. So probably the a PLS wedge. or a PRI. Okay. That's what I would think. Okay. Do you know what the listing is? I'm actually curious. Yeah, actually right here. It looks like a PRS or. It does look like a PRS. PRS, okay. Because yeah. it could do that. The wedging is not a perfect science, so it could go either way on the wedging. I would expect it to go opposite most of the time, but it could go same side. Um, rotation is totally a crapshoot. It could go either way. <laughs> okay. Because you know? it's yeah. probably, the rotation is probably based more on what's happening below it. So sure. what lift do you have further down? Yeah. You're going to have to rotate those out. Um, but yep. it, what it will do is go into flexion on that side. So flexion on that side would be um, relative posteriority on the other side. So I would expect it to be PR. After that, it gets a little iffy, but for sure PR because it's going to go flexion on the right, posteriority on the left. Mm-hmm. I did find too, fixing her exilium would help the, the occiput rotation. So that was another, you know, working on something lower where I found it immediately changed something up higher. Yeah, and you know we always do the thing about not mixing systems, but I know that at least once you tried it, tried to just see what happens. So <laughs> what happened with her when you mix system? Because <laughs> you know it's one of those things you're trying to follow the rules, and you think, well, what if I'm what if I'm cheating this patient because I should be like doing more stuff? So right. you give it a shot and see what happens. Sometimes it works out, and sometimes it horribly does not work out. So definitely found less was more, and not mixing systems was better with this patient. Um, you know, especially because she was having acid reflux and she was having it immediately after she ate, which we always think of as parasympathetic, right? Um, but I was also thinking about how we talk about biomechanics, trump neurology, and, you know, T1 helped her upper cervicals. And I kept getting, um, you know, readings around that T789 area. Um, and so even though I knew that that would be in the opposite system for the type of acid reflux she was having, I thought maybe if T1 indirectly helped her cervicals, that would be an area that would also indirectly help the upper cervicals to stay put once I wasn't finding it much at T1 anymore. So I was finding, you know, I had findings in the pelvis and the sacrum and then in the middle of her background, that T789 area. But adjusting that definitely was not good and made her acid reflux worse, which is, you know, not a huge surprise when we think about it. Um, But what I found was if I adjusted her S4, as I was talking about before, and then I would immediately go back up and check that mid-dorsal area, the scope reading would be totally gone or reversed and and the motion palpation was just fine. So even though at the beginning of the visit, I had findings in her mid-back, I didn't need to be adjusting it. The foundation took care of that and it was in the wrong part of the nervous system. So that's really interesting. I am... Last weekend, I showed uh, Dr. Webner my x-rays because I was having a lot of, tr- I was spondy and I was having a lot of trouble in my pelvis and my legs. Like I could hardly walk, my legs were weak, but he's found an L2. 
And I didn't even mention to him that I was having a lot of heartburn recently, especially after riding on a plane. It was really bugging me. And so he said, do that L2. So I got the L2 adjusted and the heartburn just disappeared. So there's definitely something to that, that you don't have to just hit the thing in the mid thoracic that's opposite the pain. Yeah. But getting that foundation right and getting some rotation out of there, because that was the problem. My L2 had a lot of rotation. My spondy couldn't adapt down below, but clearly something up higher couldn't adapt either. So I was getting these totally seemingly unrelated symptoms, but they were both a product of rotation trying to come out of the spine. And so that's very interesting that the sacrum is what got rid of the heartburn more than just hitting the thoracic and seeing what happens. Yep. The sacrum helps a lot. Yes. A lot of symptoms. And it cleared out a lot of the stuff. So at the beginning of the visit, I would get some findings on my scope, but then I would do sacrum and that would just immediately change a lot of what I was seeing on my scope. And that was telling me to just leave it alone. And then she would come in for some visits and I got nothing. So, you know, I sent her home without touching her. I think that's important, especially in a case like this too. Yes. Yeah. Not doing too much on these people. Because sometimes once you start getting things right, when they've been this bad for this long, they need time to heal. It's not going to happen instantaneously. And I've definitely learned that over the years that there's a time to just back off. Um, You can always get more. And it it was funny. I was talking to my wife about that one time. And she said, we have the same saying in dentistry that you can always, you can always cut away more bone. You can never put it back. Mm -hmm. So be conservative, not aggressive. I said, yeah, it makes sense. Like we, all doctors should have that. You can always do a little more. You can never take away what you've done. So. Yeah. Um, There were a couple of times where I, I followed my scope and I, you know, even though I would get, you know, a break on the scope, it might be opposite of what it was last time. And the motion palpation felt good. And she came in saying, I feel so great. (laughs) And then, you know, that was like my sign to just stay off of it. Don't mess with anything. When people say they feel great, I get scared. You you made a comment too. Um, you made it in your notes, but then you also made it, we were talking uh, Saturday night and you made it again about the needle and how the needle moves on your swings. And you, uh, you kind of talked about when we were talking in person, you talked about it dragging in your notes. You talked about wanting a change in reading, not just a change in swing. Yeah. So you talked about that a little bit and how you, that scope helped you with, with some of these things. Yeah, I like to look at the quality of the sway of the needle. And I don't know if other people have a way of, of you know, labeling it in their, their treatment notes or whatever. Um, but when I, when I adjust something, if I'm on the right spot, you know, sometimes initially, just especially if it's like a cord pressure, upper cervicals, I'll see this just beautiful, gentle sway of the needle. And there's no tug to it at all. And usually what I'll find is that will correlate with their symptoms improving, the motion palpation improving. Um, and that's when I see that, that's often when I'm feeling like every, all the other findings too are telling me just don't, don't touch it for a while, leave it alone. Then there are times where I might be on the right spot, but I'm not there yet, um, where we maybe need to do it a couple more times. And, and what I tend to see on the scope there is I'll see the needle, I call it a tugging motion where the needle will, um, let's say it was initially breaking to the right. And then after the adjustment, it'll, it'll tug, um, you know, kind of, uh, short tugs toward the left. So maybe it was initially, uh, like a right break, um, with the heat on the right, I would call that like plus 20 or something. And then I would do the adjustment. And then after the adjustment right away, I would see that needle tug toward the left 
um, maybe and it would go down to zero or past zero or something to the left to zero. But then after doing that a couple of times and continuing to see that tugging motion post adjustment, I'll do it one time. And sometimes I can even tell in the quality of the adjustment, you know, sometimes when you do an adjustment and you say to yourself, that's going to be good, you know, and you even tell the patient, you're going to love that adjustment. And it, and on those, I am more likely to see that just beautiful, gentle sway without any tug to it at all on my scope needle. Yeah. Hopefully that makes like, sense the way yeah, I explained it. It's like resistance to the needle. And then when the resistance yeah. is gone, there's no resistance. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to add to that? Josh, is that? No, I, I think it's great. I was thinking in my mind, I'm like, okay, Kristen, you need to draw some, some diagrams so we can all see and put tug here, <laughs> sway there. <laughs> no, Maybe make like a little video of it or something. I yeah. shouldn't say this, but this is what I was talking to Chris Myers about because his new scope has a data output that allows that. So I, he wants me to talk to somebody that I know about creating software where it would basically do exactly that. And as you scope, it would make that kind of a diagram for you showing exactly yeah. where the reading went. And then we would actually have something we could look at and compare and you could compare from visit to visit. So hopefully yeah, I've that's just kind of been making mental notes as I see that. <laughs> and I can tell you it correlates when you know you got that great set and they're doing a lot better and the motion palpation correlates where that's just so much better. Um, there, there definitely seems to be something to the quality of the, the sway of the needle. Yeah. I, I like her terms, what she's talking about. And probably the only term I use is, especially when a case starts, it seems like the scope is really active because the body's struggling. Yeah. So I don't know if what Kristen's calling a gentle sway, but at once you start getting on the right segments, then what I think the way I, I see it is that the scope calms down. It starts. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and a lot of times that's the, that's the spot where it will co correlate with the patient will report, you know, I'm sleeping better. I don't hurt so bad. Your motion's better. And so, then the decision-making process of do we give more time or do we really need to stay with this, like Kristen was saying, be, um, comes into play. And so, and, and on that note, I've erred both ways many times and still do, meaning you give someone a little more time, like, yeah, this is doing better. And they come back in a week or 10 days or whatever you decide to tell them. And you go, oh, crud. Yeah. We've all been there. Yeah. The, the good news is, is, you know, you just get back at it. And then yeah. sometimes it, they come in and they're doing really good. And you're like, oh, I'm just going to clean that up a little more. And they come back the next day, a, a train wreck, you know, so um, that can happen too. And that's, that's the balance. So when Kristen was going through her, her case, you know, I was thinking to myself, you got to go from step A to step B and you're paying attention to the symptoms and what the patient tells us. And so in my mind, it's always, did we really need to go through all those steps to get there? Right. Or were there things we were doing that, you know, uh, one of our, one of our Gonstead fellows would have eliminated yes. and made it right from A to B to C. And in, in my mind, I go, they both happen. We just don't know for sure. And that's the progression of the Gonstead chiropractor. And that's the nice thing. All these tools Kristen's talking about with the x-ray and the motion and the history and the scope. And then she reaches out to her colleagues and says, Hey, this is where I'm at. Throw me some ideas that I can go back and look for that that to me is just invaluable. So it's really cool. Well, and even yeah. seeing how everybody contributed a little bit here and there, none of us had the answer. Yeah. Right. But you pull it all together and you kind of get the answer from everybody giving their two cents. 
Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, I always tell students, too, you can send cases to the best doctors, but at the end of the day, they're not the ones sitting in front of that patient. And the best thing that we can do is teach you how to find it. <laughs> but it still helps so much to have some friends who will come in with ideas so that you can go in and investigate some of those things a little bit further. Well, I would say this, too. I think Josh would agree with this. It was easier for us to help you because you gave us good information that was almost like having our hands on the patient. Whereas when somebody just gives you a little bit of stuff, you're like, I got no idea. Yeah, if it's just an x-ray and what do I need to do? I, I say the same thing. Okay, that is not enough information. Tell me this, 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 and this. Yeah, it's a whole picture. Um, but I, I would say too, you know, initially on her, when I looked back at some of my, my notes, I would say, you know, the scope was breaking to the right at this level and this level and this level and this, and it was like, those, I mean, they can't all be legitimate scope breaks. What's going on here? You know, is that cord pressure showing up or is it because she was taking medication at the beginning? And I had this happen in a patient probably about two weeks ago where I was running the scope on her and I was being careful not to start and stop a lot. I was just one continuous motion and, and it just kept giving me a break and another break and another break in a very short part of her spine. And I told her, is there any way you can get off those meds just for two days? And so she said she would do it. And she came back two days later. She said, okay, I haven't taken the meds for two days. And I can't even tell you how clean that scope read just from her getting off that medication. And boom, there it was, L2. I mean, it was just so easy to pick out. And so it's it's really hard sometimes to read that, you know, when they are on that medication. And that was making it harder at the beginning of this case because it, it was harder to follow my scope because it was just so noisy. The scope was not clean like it is, you know, like Josh says too, after you find the, the right spot, when you find the major and you start working on the right spot, that scope reading just clears up and is so much easier to read. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, you're definitely right. I, I, was, I was thinking about that. And a lot of times when people are really bad, the scope bounces anyway. But what's interesting to me is that you tell a patient to ice and I've had patients who didn't want to ice because they were afraid it would mess up my scope reading. But then they won't hesitate to take meds because they don't think that'll mess up my scope reading the, at all. And I'm like, it's the exact opposite. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm like, ice away. I, the, it might mute my reading, but I'll still get it. Yeah. Whereas the other stuff, yeah, it starts throwing all over. And so um, I think that is one of the challenges. When you have a really bad patient and that scope is so noisy, that's what I've always used too. It's like looking at a Richter scale and it, the thing's just bouncing all <laughs> over. And you're like, well, do I just look for the big one or what do I do? Um yeah, figuring that out to be able to silence all that noise. And I think that's a good tip to get, get them off meds if they're on it, but know to ask if it's bouncing around. Um, how else did you kind of use this? How did you kind of zero in on where it was? Did you do tricks like tilting the scope or you're probably yeah. through everything you think you know, and I, I will tilt the scope, you know, especially on a patient, if I see they've got a posterior inferior cervical and I do that test that, that Dr. Rindell gives us to look for those, um, you know, the cord pressures in the mid cervicals and, and that's a positive test and on flexion, you know, it's not lifting forward into flexion, but I'm not getting a, a break on my scope at all. Let's say it's at C5 or something. Then I, I will tilt the scope and sure enough, there it is, you know, and I, I've got a positive, I call it Brindle's test now. Um, and it, it correlates with that not coming forward on flexion and otherwise you just miss that stuff. So if I have all these other indicators saying you, you're, you're probably going to get a scope break there, but I'm not seeing it. I'll definitely tilt it. Which one is the Rindle test? Is that where he moves <laughs> so, the ball on the side or is it more like an orthopedic test? He said it's the primary movers test. So he has them put their arms straight out in front of them. And then you test 
how strong it is while they're looking straight ahead. And then you retest it with their head inflection. And if they get stronger with their head inflection, then that would be positive. And you do it with the left arm, the right arm, and then you also have them lift up the right knee and the left knee while they're sitting down and test that as well. And that immediately gets better. When you adjust that, that posterior inferior cervical that's stuck, and then you redo Dr. Rendell's test on the arms or the legs, it's immediately stronger. And the patient goes, whoa, yeah, that, that did it. Whatever you did, that, that just got a lot stronger. It's because that's the um, main innervation. So that's, the, that's why it's the primary movers. That's how I understand it. <laughs> I think, I think what he's looking at is he's looking at posterior inferior anterior cord. So he's looking at motor. Motor, yeah, like we were talking about before, yeah. yeah. So that's a, a situation of cord pressure there where it can be just one group, you know, local, but the he taught that in his paralysis cat, kit yeah. class. He was talking about anterior cord pressure, yeah. I've tried to get him on here, and he keeps telling me, I'm really busy, keep asking, maybe I'll say yes eventually. Because he's got people <laughs> flying from all over the country to get their cord pressure fixed. Yeah. And so I was like, do I, do I just go to Washington to come to you? <laughs> yeah. I might. <laughs> well, just, fake, uh, just fake paralysis. You'll get right in. <laughs> That's what I should do. Yeah. I'm paralyzed. <laughs> um, so how is she, how is she doing now? So now um, she still has a little bit of the hand tingling, but it's not as often and it's not as intense. And she still has some of the dizziness, but that's not as intense either. So those are the two things that aren't like totally good. How did the, um, well, which one was it that got rid of the uh, staticky snow vision? Was that the T1? You know, that was early on. Um, I think it might've even been before the T1. I have to go back and check that. That one, that one surprised me. I thought that was going to be a lingering symptom. But that one was one of the first things to go away. And yet I know most people would think vision problems must be an atlas. Yeah. Um, not what you did. <laughs> I was trying to think it was either T1 or it might have been the sacrum, but I, I don't know why I thought it was T1. It, was it that. could be. I know she had eye twitching when I was on S3 instead of S4. Right. Um, so it affected the eye in that way later on. Which that's interesting as well. The idea that something in the so sacrum irritated on three twenty two twenty one, my notes say no more black spots in her vision. So it was something before three twenty two. I think that's an interesting point. Something before three twenty two, because you know, like as we go through here, we talk about not cookbooking things, and so like the mm -hmm. things Kristen's talking about are the, the observations she's making with the best interpretation, but I can't tell you how many times I've been working on something and you think what you did was what changed that, mm -hmm. but it could, it could be something you did uh, three months ago or even a month ago. True. Especially, true. When you, especially when you talk about a visceral portion of that. Yeah. And so the one thing that the young doctors and students, and we all get trapped into this, like we were talking with the jaw earlier, we started looking at the jaw, you know, is to, like Dr. Gonson said, you look at the whole thing, accept it where you find it. And then these types of conversations give us ideas, places to look when it seems like that patient is not progressing with our scope, motion, how they feel, et cetera, but not just following their symptoms. That gets to be a rodeo ride in a quick hurry. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's so easy to fall in that trap of chasing symptoms. And once you do, you just end up chasing your tail up and down the spine and all over the place. And you finally get rid of that symptom to create a new one. And then you're like, now what's going on? And it gets yeah. insane real fast. I always make sure my patients know that. And I don't talk to them about their symptoms every visit. But they all know that when they come in, if there's something they want to report, I want to know about it. I tell yeah. them I'm in mind reading class right now, but Michelle says I'm not any good at it yet. So <laughs> you better use words. And the, the trick is, is to filter out what they're telling you, or at least to interpret what they're telling you. That does not necessarily mean it may change anything about right. their care, but nobody knows how that patient is doing with, with what they feel better than they do. Right. So it, is, it is important information, you know? And yeah, I was I, I was kind of thinking about that with her her cord pressures too because you know if I'm working on um, T1 and that's helping the cord pressure indirectly at C5 she you know she would come in and maybe say well I'm not doing as good well what's not doing as good she had opposite cord pressures going on so maybe while one thing was getting better the other thing wasn't you know was doing worse there you know there's so much more to it than just I'm better I'm worse. Um, so it's sometimes, you know, it's, I, I don't always ask my patients about specific symptoms, but I'll say like you do, I'll say, is there anything new or different I should know, you know, and just leave it at that. Um, and I like to go with my findings because if you do get too far into the symptoms, sometimes the way they say it can even lead you in the wrong direction. You know, I'm, I'm getting worse. Well, one thing was getting worse, but you probe a little bit. There's another thing that got better. Yeah. I, I sometimes have a challenge with, um, asking the symptoms because you ask the symptoms, then the patient thinks that it's all about the symptoms mm -hmm. and they don't understand. The reason I want to know your symptoms is because I'm looking for a pattern. Are they all sympathetic? Right. Are they all parasympathetic? Do I yes. have a mix? And I'm like, I don't need to get into all that with them, but it's not because, oh, I got big toe pain. You got an adjustment for big toe pain. No, I'm trying to figure out, like, that's the hard part is keeping them yeah. out of that mentality of an adjustment for an ill. But at the same time, I do want to know your symptoms because mm -hmm. you know, right. It That'll is a piece of the puzzle and they are, they are helpful, <laughs> but if you're not careful, they can lead you the wrong way too. Yep. Um, is there anything else about this case that strikes you or uh, any, anything major that you feel like you've learned from this that you're taking forward for either one of you? I feel like I learned a lot from it. <laughs> you probably learned the most because you had it right in front of your face. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and like Dr. Josh was saying before, if I had been a Gonstead fellow, would I have gone from, you know, point A to point Z a lot quicker? Probably. Um, part of me thinks that there were some layers involved, you know, so well, I kind of had to fight that fire at, at T1 initially down the road, you know, it was, it was other things down lower that would just clear T1 out. But what if I had started with that very specific S4 adjustment and only that S4 adjustment, would that have just taken care of it all, you know? Um, but we don't always know the end game right away that it just takes some investigation. So if anything, I'm persistent. Um, I can say that, you know, that I wasn't going to give up. Um, you know, I, I would, I would just feel terrible if I, I had given up and she went the medical route when it was really unnecessary. And so I'm always asking myself, is there something different I can do? And even if I don't get it right away, um, I'm going to stay after it and phone a friend like I did with you guys. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Kristen's right on there. And the tendency is sometimes if someone's not getting better to immediately think we're not doing what should be done. And so sometimes you make a change to find out that, you no, know, I was actually better where I was at and to keep 
plugging away at it. And that's why they call it practice. They call it, you know, T used to say, well, don't, don't go to chiropractic and just practice. He'd say practice, perfect practice, meaning have the mindset, like Kristen said, how can I do this a little bit better? And then the trick is without changing stuff all the time. And if you really watch, you know, the guys that have been doing it for 40 years, they'll hone in on an area and, and they're, they're following that subluxation until it gets corrected. Most of the time, they're not bouncing all over the place, which is, you know, students, especially young doctors, we all fall into that. So when you get a case like this, where you got to muddle through and kind of unwind it, I always feel like when you're moving around, we haven't quite dialed in on it yet. We haven't found that major problem. So do we always have to go through that? Sometimes I think we probably do. Not always. It just, how do you know? And the only way you know is to keep practicing and figure it out. And I remember Dr. Troxel one time, a patient came in and said, da, 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 this is doing better. And they go, well, how did all that happen? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> Didn't know. It just, the body did what it needed to do. It took what it had interference in, you removed, and it did better. He says, I can't explain how it all worked, but your body knows exactly what it's doing. It's extremely smart. But then he turned around and talked to colleagues and things like that and say, okay, I understand the thyroid this way, how it works with the adrenal gland. And then, you know, try to deeper, deepen our understanding. So it's really fun. Great case, yeah, Kristen. You did a great job. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. So, Thanks for your help. I I went back and I was looking at the dates and I realized when we first started this conversation was actually when I had COVID. And then I vaguely remembered that you had sent me x-rays and I couldn't even figure out what views I was looking. It was an AP full spine and a lateral full spine. And I couldn't even figure out what views I was looking at. And that's when I emailed you and I was like, I am of no use to you. Uh, I'm, I'm brain dead, basically. So then after I was getting better, I went back and I started reading through them. Um, and I and I started thinking about it. I thought, you know, a lot of times we refer to certain situations as um, a difficult patient or a difficult case. It's really more of a more demanding case because it demands more precision in your diagnosis, more precision in your adjustments. Um, and those are the ones that make us better because I'm sure your diagnosis will be better having gone through this. Um, you learned how to do things with your adjustments with a level of specificity that will change how you do that in the future. So it's like, those are the cases that make you better because they're not difficult. They're more demanding. And Absolutely. that's basically how it trains is increase the demand and come to meet the standard. So, um, well definitely a good case. I learned a ton. So thank you guys for joining me. I really appreciate it. This has been awesome. Hey, thanks for all you do, Dr. Fowler. Yeah, thank you. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Fellows and Dr. Lawler for joining me. I'd especially like to thank Dr. Fellows for all the hard work she put into the case. She supplied Dr. Lawler and myself each with a notebook detailing all the email correspondence, the x-rays, and her notes from each visit. I know that took a lot of time and effort, and Dr. Lawler and I both very much appreciate it. I hope you learned something from this case, but more than that, I hope you had some insight to shape the way you think about every patient. I'm so thankful for the people we have in this community and the opportunity to learn with them and from them. I'm also thankful that you've chosen to come along with us and that we can share these insights with you. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.